Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. In this episode, we will be talking more about imperialist China. Thank you.
background. There are a few generations removed from that. But what does that mean they are not? I guess that's a lot of things. But as far as the Chinese people are concerned, these guys are not what? They're not Chinese. And so they are seen as foreigners. And they're seen as foreign rulers here. Which automatically in China is creating a social disharmony that normally would not exist in China. China, back to the Confucian roots and those things, has always had a very harmonious social setup. They've had their problems, they've had their rebellions and things like that, but there's always been these specific roles. Well, there's been discord here because now China's underneath the influence of a foreign ruler in a lot of the minds of the Chinese. Now, also, we're seeing a huge amount of population growth, which is putting a strain on the economy. Because with this population growth, obviously we're seeing more mouths to feed, but we're not seeing a better, more efficient way to feed these guys. And we're not seeing a better, more efficient economy to match this. In the West, you know, in Europe and these things, population growth was a huge result of better agricultural advancements, and it was a huge result of um, industrial change. Well, they're getting that here in the East without the advancement economically. So we're going to start to see pressure on the land and the peasant class to produce more food. Um, these small farms are becoming inadequate with this growing population. The cities are swelling like crazy, urbanization forced in a lot of cases. And so a lot of poverty, a lot of unemployment, starvation, all of these kinds of things. Okay? This is one of the internal problems that we're seeing with China. Now, the other problem that really starts to show up in, res in response to this is the ineptitude, I guess is the best word maybe to say that, with which the Qing Dynasty is administering China. You know, they've adopted a lot of the old Chinese ways of doing things. Um, what's become, you know, give me a description of the Chinese dynastic system. What does it look like? Because this is something that's very regional, and this is something of big characteristic of the region. If you're describing the Chinese dynasty, describe that to me. What are they always really good at doing? Okay, stability. Give me some other descriptors here. Yes. They're very bureaucratic in nature, right? They're very organized. Everything is very divided up. You have as you have an answer for every situation based on Confucian style teachings. You have a role for every person. Very organized. You do this. You do this. You do this. The peasants all know exactly where they stand, what they're supposed to be doing. Everybody has a role. And that shows up with gender roles. That shows up with social class and the roles they play. It's all spelled out right there. And the Qing Dynasty adopts a lot of that mentality, but they don't necessarily implement it very well. Because their, bureauc their bureaucracy is not the same as what the main bureaucracy used to be. Or you might have local leaders who kind of resent and give a lot of pushback to the foreign Manchu Qing dynasty. All right? So when you have that kind of situation, the bureaucratic system breaks down. And so they're not going to be very good at all of these things 
administratively that you would think a Chinese empire would be very good at, traditionally have been very good at. They're not great and not effective and efficient at collecting taxes, meaning they're not going to have money to fund large projects. And in China, that's not a great situation. The reason that the Chinese bureaucracy exists is to accomplish these great things. In the ancient world, it was flood control and building dams and irrigation systems. In um, and the Grand Canal connecting North and South China, uh, building the walls and building all these things for defense and for those kind of things. If you don't have the efficiency with that, you're not going to with tax collection and money. You're not going to have financial institutions to help fund those things. Okay, so we're going to see a breakdown of government efficiency under the Qing Dynasty. All right, and so we're going to start to see a devolution is taking place. So we have some internal problems here. And when this happens, the peasants don't have the role that they traditionally did. And in China, that's dangerous because China is still 85, 90% peasant population. Even the people that have moved to cities, they're not really forming this new working class that we see in the West because it's not industrialized yet, right? So we still have an overwhelming amount of peasants that are here, all right? And these guys are starving. These guys can't really look after themselves. And there's all kinds of issues at home that are being neglected by the government. Floods are out of control because the infrastructure's out of control. These peasants are suffering. So we have a massive rebellion that's taking place, the Taiping Rebellion. And this is gonna be similar to a lot of the other peasant rebellions that we've seen before, right? Peasant rebellions, Large number of peasants, very unorganized, rebellion here, rebellion here, rebellion here, all of these different things. And we're going to see a group that comes together under uh, leadership and that kind of stuff of Hong here, but trying to bring organization to this movement, unsuccessfully, but trying. And you're going to see a different flair to this, all right? Look at what this is based on. What seems a little bit weird about this? Do what? No. Say it again. Actually, could it be because it says Jesus and that's like... Why is that weird in China? They're more Confucian than Christianity. And Jesus is associated with which regions? Europe. Europe, the West, right? This is a Western region, or this is a Western religion, right? We're starting to see the influence of the Europeans already here because we have the influx of their religion and then their ideas also. If you look at what these guys are trying to call for, this looks like a socialist agenda or a communist agenda or some of these ideo ideologies of the West that are starting to influx over here. All right? Abolition of private property, radical redistribution of land, equality, that sounds like Karl Marx. That sounds like the Enlightenment. That sounds like all of these ideas that we just talked about in the previous century with the West starting to trickle over here to the East. All right? Keep that in mind as we move forward. That's a big, that's a big idea here. Okay? So, and we're also going to start to see a... Yeah, thank you. We're also going to start to see a... 
reaction against the foreign Qing dynasty, nationalist movements. Okay, so that's what we're going to start to see here. Yes. He was trying to organize that. Now here's the deal. The peasants, it's very, very difficult to bring organization to this. And he's talking about ideas that, you know, he's read these books and things from the Enlightenment. Those, the peasants haven't read those. And the idea of equality and those things is not necessarily a common thing in the East. You know, these peasants are very used to the social contract that existed and has existed with the Confucian order for a long time. And this religious change is not necessarily a big thing. And he's calling, he's saying that he's the younger brother of Jesus and things. That's a little bit out there. Okay? But, so, it's hard to bring order to this movement. But this gets attention. What do peasants always want? Land. Land. So a redistribution of land, yes. that is a huge motivator for the peasants. All right, so we have this rebellion that's taking place. Eventually, we're going to see the Taiping movement crushed. All right, the army, the Qing dynasty is going to call in the national army. They still at least are pretty good at fighting. And so they're going to hold on. They're not going to topple the regime yet. But the damage has been done. What does that mean? Military is crushed, and who else? Peasant rebellion is always in this way. And the aristocracy always tends to survive, right? The peasants survive too, but a lot of them get killed. And in China, this is a big issue because we're not talking about industrialized society. So if you are destroying a peasant class, and a nation is already starving, who's going to produce more food? When you destroy the military, who's going to stop foreign invasion? When the Chinese, I'm sorry, when the British start coming knocking on the door. Well, the military's been depleted. The peasants have been depleted. It's the same type situation we saw at the end of the Han Dynasty, when the Yellow Turban Rebellion depleted the peasant class, depleted the military, so there was nobody to stand up to the foreign barbarian Central Asian nomadic groups to come in. Well, now the barbarian groups are not from Central Asia, they're from the West. And the Chinese, or oh, sorry, the British, the French, the Russians, the Germans, the Japanese are all gonna come knocking on the door and there's not going to be a military stopping. All right? So that's the effects. Weakening of all this right here. So now we're going to start to see external <coughs> pressures mounting. And it doesn't just start with the Taiping Rebellion. External pressures have been building for a while. Back in the 1700s, we know that the Europeans have started to gain interest in the East. What's the biggest interest that we have in China, if we're the Western powers? What's that? Well, silk's cool. But if I'm an imperial, industrialized nation, and I can produce anything I want to produce, in whatever quantity I want to produce, what am I looking for? You're still back in the uniform mentality. 
they are going to get silver out of here, but yes. There's lots of natural resources. Yeah, I can get those from Africa. What does China have? Oh, Silk. People. A market. People to trade with. China has a lot of those guys. And they have silver to buy stuff. No, 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 no. They have people to buy the goods that I'm producing. Because if I don't have people to buy my goods, what good is it to produce them, right? So, um, China is a great market. It's the market. It's the ultimate of all markets. Huge population. Still some of that silver left over that Ethan's after from Unit 4. There's still some stuff around, right? So, that's what we're looking at here. China and East Asia, what was their response when the Europeans came knocking at the door? Japan closed the ports. China closed the ports. Korea closed the ports. Because they don't like the influx of this European way of life. We've already seen it happening with the Taiping Rebellion. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about uh, enlightened ideals. We're talking about communism, redistribution of property and land. It's already, it's already happened. Close things down. Kick the Western influence out. That's what we're hoping for here for China. And so that starts to happen here. And the British have found a way to get control over one particular market. What is every Chinese person after here going into the 1800s? Opium. Opium. The British have successfully, well, I'm not going to say that the British forced addiction on these Chinese, but they helped aid it. Okay? And the British have a huge supply of this coming from their colonies in South Asia, and they're trading it like crazy into China. And this is not a great situation for the Chinese for a couple of reasons. One, socially speaking, if I'm the Chinese government, I don't want a nation of addicts because that's not going to be very productive of a nation. If all they want to do is go to the opium den and smoke opium all day long, that's not going to work out great. And then the second thing is, this is a fundamental breakdown of, I'll go back to that slide a little bit, this is a fundamental breakdown of our bureaucratic system because this is illegal. And so what happens is the British, in order to come in and trade, are going to work the system. Right? If Kevin is the regional governor here representing the Qing dynasty, if I'm the British, I'm going to pay Kevin whatever I can to turn a blind eye to what's going on. And that disrupts this bureaucratic system because I'm greasing his pockets so that I can trade opium in his territory. And he's ignoring his supervisors, his emperor, his everything, because I'm paying them all. That's a breakdown of the fundamental political system of the Jin dynasty. So we're seeing a political breakdown, an economic problem, because that silver that Ethan loves so much is now starting to get away from China. And in Unit 4, China had done such a good job of attracting the silver within the region. Now it's exiting at a huge rate. And then the social problem of we have an empire of addicts now. It's not great. All right? So we close down the ports and we shut this down from the British. And the British say, look at what we have that we're trading. One is way, I mean, look, it's not even close. Opium is double 
what, the, uh, what everything else is. All right, and this is just in one territory. This is in Canton here, where uh, Hong Kong is. All right, this is just one territory. All right, so the British, this is an unacceptable answer as far as closing the ports down. So they're gonna, it's worth going to war over, and they do. Dan, question. I'm just wondering, in Japan, when was the Boxer Rebellion? That's in China. We'll talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> we'll get more into that next week. We'll talk about imperialism. But that's going to be a nationalist revolt. These are economic revolts. And so the Opium War, well, there's a couple, but the first Opium War is going to be fought because the Chinese try to kick the British out and the British say, we're not going. And the British bring their navy over, they bring their armies over, and win the war. So the first opium war is the British coming in, opening up on the Chinese. And the result is, at the Treaty of Nanjing, they open up ports, they pretty much seize territories like Hong Kong and these others, which the British are going to stay in for a long time. The British don't leave Hong Kong until, what, 1990s? A long time. All right? And so this is forcing open China to trade. And the Chinese don't like it. After a little bit of time, they fight a second opium war. The treaty pretty much ends the same way. The British get more territory. And after this, China is going to be opened up to pretty much everybody. There's going to be a war that the French fight to open up these ports. The Japanese fight. There's this huge, long, this last half of the 1800s, not a good situation for China. Meaning what for the Qing Dynasty? They've probably lost what? That mandate of heaven. That <coughs> still exists. Alright? It's a little bit different now, but it's probably a good sign here, alright? So, all of these different things here. We have the French beating them, the British in the two opium wars, the Japanese are now an industrial power and beating up on the Chinese. So, all of these industrial nations start dividing China, which is the great marketplace, up into spheres of influence. The British, the Germans, the Russians, the Japanese, the French, and they're all dividing this into exclusive trading areas. China can't do anything to stop it. Alright? And in these spheres of influence, they'll have the military presence, They'll be able to get out whatever raw materials they want, and they'll pretty much trade exclusively in those areas. And they'll have a huge cultural presence. If I'm a businessman in that area, I've got to start speaking British. Oh, that's English, I guess, sorry. I've got to start speaking German. I've got to start speaking whatever, right? And I've got to start adopting the ways of that group. It's economically beneficial. And so this is China's worst nightmare of losing itself and becoming westernized. So the next round is, someone was asking about the Boxer Rebellion and some of these other things. Nationalism is gonna to start to pick up and Chinese nationalists are gonna to start to unite against the Qing Dynasty, because they're foreigners, and against Western presence in these spheres of influence. And they're gonna create a new republic in 1911. The Chinese dynastic order is done 1911. Alright, so here's your spheres of influence. 
Now, China's going to go through some different modernization movements, westernization movements. Most of these fail because the Qing dynasty is not great at implementing these. But we're going to try to get rid of a lot of the flaws in the bureaucratic system, overhauling the examination system. Try to get the scholar gentry back involved, repair some of the um, infrastructure that's been coming into disarray here. Maybe even bring in some industrial aspects here, a few uh, factories here and there. But most of their raw materials are being extracted by the Westerners, so this is a difficult process. But the 1800s are not a very good situation for China. These attempts at industrialization, pretty much, they're definitely not supported by the landowners, most of which are blocked by the landowners because that's not a good situation for them. Um, they don't really stand to gain from this big urban movement that's there. So industry really falls apart. They become reliant on foreign goods, Western production, and they can't do anything to stop the British, French, German, Russian, French, I said French, right, uh, Japanese from doing whatever they want to as far as selling and extracting goods. So the self-strengthening program really is not very effective there. All right? And we're going to have uprisings. Boxer Rebellion is going to be probably the biggest one. It's a nationalist revolt. It's not going to be successful because we're actually going to see a big coalition of all the Western powers coming together to put down this revolt in each of their own spheres of influence. The Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists, which are called boxers, are a nationalist group. <coughs> Anti-foreign movement against the Qing Dynasty, against the Westerners. All right? Coalition here to put this down, and they succeed in putting it down. And after this, China is completely dependent on the industrialized nations. So the 1800s for China are a humbling experience. They go from really units one, two, three, and four as a dominant figure here to really picked on by every industrial power. And the difference is they are industrialized and China's not. Keep that in mind when we go into Japan. We'll talk about Japan a little bit more tomorrow. Uh, we know about the growth of nationalism and that kind of stuff. All right? We'll talk about uh, Ottomans in Japan tomorrow. We'll call it quits there for today. But keep that in mind, because Japan is going to have a different approach, and theirs is going to be a little bit more successful. Thank you to the many people that have been tuning in to Elrod's Educational Lectures. This is our 10th episode, and we will still be making more episodes as we go on through the school year. Thank you.